Good morning. You can have a seat. <sighs> Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Andrea, the rest of the team, for leading us to worship and leading us through worship. I just, I feel like this morning I just feel a special sense and reminder that when we worship, the resurrected Christ is looking on at us, I mean you and me, singing to him. And it's not as if we're sort of doing the singing thing as sort of a nice spiritual therapeutic sort of, it's good, you know, get, do some singing. No, uh, he receives our worship, the right worship that the resurrected Lord of history deserves, and he is just loving it. So it's just good to worship together. I guess that's all I have to say there. Um, my name is Thomas Hoke, and I am one of the past time working with groups and classes and things like that, sort of our, what we call quipping. Um, but today we get to hear from God's word, preaching, proclaiming the truth of the Bible. And so this week we will be in 2 Corinthians 7. So if you've got your physical Bible, which I highly recommend, helps me to avoid distractions, uh, you can pull that out. I saw many of you bringing them in. Uh, if you prefer the electronic version, now is a good time to scroll, click, however you navigate your way there. Now this week we're continuing a series on renewal. Renewal. And this week we're focusing on the theme of repentance uh, and that relationship between repentance and renewal. What would it look like for God to make us a people of repentance? to transform our church into a culture of repentance? Um, well, maybe even as I begin, you go, oh, aha, okay, repentance, a nice religious word. Well, not so quick. I know repentance, maybe when you, when what the image that comes to mind when you think of repentance may be sort of an angry person on a street corner, they're sort of shouting, maybe they have a megaphone, maybe a sign, which is, hurtful, and uh, they want everyone to know mostly, not so much to, to repent, but to know that they are better than you. That is not what we're talking about here. In fact, uh, repentance might be a religious word, but I hope you see, especially by the end of our time, that repent is a, is a universal phenomenon. We all do it in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I thought you might like an example from my life. So over the holidays, there was an evening. I sat down, uh, sort of in a, plopped down from the TV, and flipped on a show, and I was watching it, and I uh, happened to have bagged potato chips next to me. And after about, I don't know, it felt like about 10 minutes, I looked over and I realized, did someone else eat all these potato chips? No, they did not. I had almost finished an entire full-size bag of potato chips by myself. <sighs> what did I feel? Well, bloated. But uh, secondly, I just felt regret. Oh my goodness, I just, I just basically sort of, uh, and, and especially, you know, I've sort of committed myself, uh, I want to stay away from salt, I want to sort of have a healthy life, that sort of things. And so I, I regretted it. Uh, my behavior was sort of inconsistent with those commitments I had made. And so I closed the bag, I stood up, I put, the, put it away, and I said, Katie, I can't believe I did this, help me to stop doing it. Now what did I do? And I know this is a silly example. I repented. I saw that my behavior was inconsistent with the commitments that I had, and so I, I changed my attitude, I changed my behavior, and I made a plan to be different in the future. 
Now, that's a silly example, and of course, when we speak of repentance here, we're thinking of ultimate repentance, not just sort of our surface-level commitments to diet and, you know, exercise or have a good life, work balance or whatever it is, but to our deepest core commitments of who we are. And, and at its core, when we talk about repentance, we're asking the question, how do we change? And I mean really change. How do we become different kinds of, a different kind of person at the deepest level? That is what we're talking about today when we talk about repentance. Um, so yes, we all do it, uh, but we're talking about something at the deepest level. And so we're going to read from 2 Corinthians 7 and learn about repentance. Uh, verses 5 through 10 is where I will uh, read, and the emphasis is really going to be on verses 8 through 10, as you'll see. But it says this, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, the Corinthians, that is, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Parkview, I want you to hear today from 2 Corinthians 7, that we must embrace the Godward life, Godward life, by embracing repentance. Embrace the Godward life by embracing repentance. Uh, first, in this passage, we're gonna learn the nature of repentance and why we all repent, well, whether we sort of mean to or not. And then we'll learn two things that make Christian repentance in particular unique, unlike any other kind of attempts to change ourselves and be different. First, we'll learn what is repentance, and then what makes Christian repentance different? So first, let's pray. All of this is only possible by God's power, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are great. <laughs> Show us how great you are. You have created us, each one of us in this room, and we owe you simply everything. Thank you that you will receive us or have received us in Christ. Our eyes give us ears to hear what it means to repent. Father, make us famous for our repentance. Give us a culture of repentance where we all know that repentance is not just the way into the Christian life, but the only way through the Christian life. Do all of this by your word, by your spirit, in our hearts now, we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, the first thing that we learn is the definition of repentance. What is repentance? Um, so Paul wrote this letter, and I know I said, um, we're totally picking up sort of midstream of thought here, but what you need to know is that Paul wrote a letter, this letter, the letter of 2 Corinthians, but he also wrote another letter, so in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. I know that's confusing. Um, but he wrote a letter in between, and it was a letter that clearly was admonishing uh, the, the church at Corinth that they had done something wrong. They had really messed up, and, and Paul wrote what sounds like was an incredibly fierce letter, 
and that was his only way he could communicate. He couldn't do it face to face. Do you feel his pain? Okay. And, uh, and then he just kind of had to sit on his hands. He didn't know how they would respond. And so he's talking about how stressed he was. He's in Macedonia, away from uh, Corinth. His body had no rest. He's afflicted. He's, he's thinking of them. He's thinking, are they going to repent? Are they, are they going to see what's wrong and, and truly commit to change? And he's stressed out, Apostle Paul. But then finally Titus shows up, he says, and he comforted Paul uh, because his report from the Corinthian church, which is where Titus had come from, was that, yes, indeed, uh, they saw the error of their ways, they turned back to God from the way that they had been living, and they, they, they had godly grief, which we'll talk about in a second, and they, they changed. And so Paul is just praising God, praising God for what has happened. Um, they apologized, and this is what Paul's concerned about, they apologized to Paul uh, for reasons I can't get into right now, but more importantly to Paul, they apologized to God. And so they turned and, and changed their behavior and, to match their repentant hearts. And so when we think of repentance and what we learn from this passage, the, the Bible says that we all, every one of us in this room, were created by God in the image of God, in the image of a God who is not just one, indeed he is one, but he is also three. And that matters because in the innermost core of God's being, he is not self-centered. In the beginning, God did not create us because he was lonely and needed something else to work on or focus on or, or needed someone to love. In fact, from the beginning, God has been a three-in-one of love, the Father looking at and loving and serving the Son, the Son looking at and loving and serving the Spirit, the Spirit doing the same to the Father and all three to one another forever. And so to be created in the image of that kind of God who is perpetually and always oriented to the good outwardly of others means that that's how we should be too. But in the tragedy that started all other tragedies, uh, our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God. They turned away. And so rather uh, than being oriented to God, first of all, and consequently to others, to the people around us, Instead of our love and concern and care and interest going outward, it sort of goes uh, right back in. And so, uh, this problem is endemic in all of us. It is the great uh, mystery that we've all been trying to solve. It is the human condition. The problem is not just painful, it is uh, what Paul describes as deadly. Uh, we are disconnected from the God of life and therefore, we have to find meaning and purpose somewhere, but instead of going outside of ourselves to trust God, we go about right back in. So how can we be fixed? We are stuck in this perpetual cycle of self-interest and shame, and if this inward problem is not, it, I mean, haven't you experienced it? It is death to feel that way, that the only way I can be served and taken care of is if I look out for number one. If this not, if this, he says it's death, if it's not, feeling like death now, it will feel like death forever. How can we be fixed? What can pull us out of our... This is the core of every problem that you've ever experienced and every bit of evil on earth. Woof. Maybe you're here and you hear me say that and you go, no, I've tried to change. I have tried my best and only to find out that even in your best moments, you are not as selfless as you know you ought to be. 
And you know you can, you can look out there and you can find voices that say, no, it's really okay to be self-focused. You really need to do that, maybe even a lot of the time. Maybe you've tried living better on your own and you've just gotten increasing, increasingly and perpetually exhausted by it. Uh, trying to fix your flaws only to find that you can't reach down quite deep enough into your heart to really change the thing that's, that's deepestly wrong with you. Maybe you're here and you're a Christian and you, you're committed to God, committed to Christ, and yet you have found that you've committed yourself to serving God and you have exhausted yourself serving him only to find that he has let you down. He did not give you the life that he seemed to promise you and he didn't hold up his end of the bargain and you're getting a little sick of it. What you are running into is the core problem of what it means to be a human being living in the wake of Genesis 2. Genesis 3, I should say. We were made to orbit around God and around one another like the earth orbits around the sun, looking to him, being nourished by him in every aspect of our beings and every single other act of change being oriented to that fundamental shift in our inner selves. But we just can't seem to do it. How, who can pull? We need someone to come and pull us out of ourselves. And that is not just what this passage is about. This is actually sort of the fundamental problem that the entire Bible is written to address. Uh, the reason Jesus came to earth and that God came and promised to fix all things. So there's a lot of good news. <laughs> so what, uh, the definition of repentance. The definition of repentance. What is repentance? Well, repentance is always relational. Repentance is apology. Repentance is heartfelt and real apology. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe I'm sure you've had to do it at one point or another in your life with another person. It's heartfelt and real apology and commitment to change. But what, what distinguishes Christian repentance? Is it, is it just that we have sort of better commitments to, to return to when we, when we decide we need to be different? Well, I think so, but that's not quite what it is. Uh, is it just that we're sort of more wholehearted? We're, we're more committed people in, in our turning and being different and trying to change? No, that's, that's, I mean, I hope so. I hope we are wholehearted, but that's not quite it. There are two things I want to say that make Christian repentance different, that make Christian repentance unique, that actually separate Christianity from every other attempt to change that anyone has ever tried in the history of the universe. <clears throat> Have I built it up enough? Okay. First, the first unique thing that we learn about repentance, Christian repentance, is the direction of repentance. The direction of repentance. We see that in verse 9. <clears throat> Excuse me. He says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief. A godly grief. A godly grief. A Godward grief we might say, a God-word grief. And this, Paul contrasts with a worldly grief, uh, which is in verse 10. Worldly grief produces death, he says. Two options, wow. Paul looks at the world and divides in two. There is godly grief or God-word grief, and there is worldly grief. The direction of our repentance matters. And in fact, it's what makes Christian repentance Christian repentance. At the bottom, all of our efforts to change fundamentally fall into one of those two. Well, you might ask, what is worldly grief? How could I recognize that? What does it look like in the wild? Well, uh, it's the Bible's way of describing all of our attempts to sort of fix ourselves apart from God. 
It's us trying to sort of launch apart from the orbit of our own self-interest to escape the fundamental self-centeredness that resides in each of us, all without turning back, actually turning back to the Creator to reconnect us to His life. If, If repentance is apology, like we said, heartfelt and real with commitment to change, worldly grief is, it's that, but in worldly grief, underneath everything, we're not really apologizing to God. In the end, we're, we're apologizing to ourselves. Let me unpack that for a minute. Uh, am I actually, let me just give an example because I think that would be more helpful. <clears throat> the last few years actually have provided a number of public examples of what it looks like to apologize to yourself. Athletes who are caught using performance-enhancing drugs, we have politicians who are caught in scandals, business leaders who are caught breaking the rules, and these men and women, they get up behind a microphone and they say, I'm sorry if you were offended. Woof. I have taken many tests and all of them have tested negative, but my lawyer told me I need to read this statement. Wow. He really feels it. What is worldly grief? Well, these people, they will, they will follow their, and I'm not looking down on these people at all. I'll get to why in a minute. But they, they'll follow the rules in the future, not because they're sorry about the damage they've caused so much, not because uh, they, they really mourn the way that they've affected the integrity of society or any of those things. They're sorry they got caught. Uh, or, or they feel bad because they look like bad people and they need to remedy their image. Or they, uh, worldly grief, all of the forms of worldly grief, I could spend the next three days sort of explaining, not because I've seen them out there so much, but because I've seen my own heart do them in a hundred different ways. Squirming and squirrely all over the place, finding ways for me to justify my own behavior. Worldly grief whew, is awful. <laughs> you've experienced it, you've seen it, you've had it done to you, you see how much it hurts. When people apologize, but they're not, they're not really apologizing to you. Maybe you've gotten a, one of those drive-by apologies where it's clear that the person is really only apologizing to assuage their own sense of guilt. They're not really interested in how they've made you feel. It's awful. And I think, you know, worldly grief is probably, and I hate to say this, it's probably most evident and most obvious uh, when we, especially if you're parents or, you know, you've, you've seen this in children. Not because kids, you know, are not ever really can't repent or anything like that, but just because they haven't learned our society's rules for how to be sort of a nice, normal person. And so you say, hey, you just hit me with a bat. <laughs> Do you have anything to say? And they say, sorry, <laughs> right? <laughs> they just haven't learned that, okay, if you keep acting like that, eventually you're going to lose your friends, uh, everyone's going to be, you know, not want to hang out with you. And eventually, if you keep doing that when you're an adult, they have learned, uh, they will learn that their behavior will lead to bad outcomes because we have laws and we have all these kinds of things that sort of constrain our worldly grief and our, our lack of real repentance. But it doesn't really change us. Now, I'm glad that it's illegal to hit people with bats. I am so glad that we have those kinds of things to constrain our sense of self-centeredness uh, because I'm glad that that motivates people to not do that. But the law can't change our inner problems, our, our deep-seated self-centeredness. Now, maybe you're here and you're thinking, or maybe you're listening online and you're going, what have I stumbled upon? 
this guy, I know I'm not a Christian or I'm really just sort of exploring this and it sounds like this guy really thinks I'm just an absolute dirtbag. Okay, he must think I just, you know, hate puppies and just, just I'm a horrible person. How self-centered, how, how arrogant. No, 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 hold on. Well, I hope it would at least comfort you that while this is certainly the Bible's account of things, it has not gone unnoticed. And in fact, probably the greatest or most, uh, most influential philosopher of the last century, Friedrich Nietzsche, said this. He said, do you want a name for this world? A solution for all its riddles? A light for you too, you best concealed, strongest, most intrepid, most uh, midnightly men? This world is the will to power and nothing besides. What is he saying? He's saying exactly what the Bible is saying, apart from, of course, he didn't think there was a God. So for him, he looked out at a world and he said, what, what really motivates us? We want control and on our destiny, be able to manipulate the world around us, the will to power. And don't forget that in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul was speaking to whom? To the pagans out in the lobby? To the, to the people in, in, in downtown who are having a good time? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the churchy folk. He's talking to us. We are not immune to self-centered repentance. Repentance? In fact, worldly repentance in religious clothing is the most dangerous of all. Oh yes, oh yes. Nietzsche and the Apostle Paul and Jesus agree. How could it be wrong? Okay? Religious repentance is dangerous because it looks so similar to Christian repentance. Oh my. The Christian woman who used to regularly blow up on her roommate and then changes because her roommate comes to her and says, what are you doing? You're, I, I, I'm going to have to move out. You're going to have to figure out your own thing. The Christian woman who, who repents and, and becomes more patient, well, <clears throat> behavior change is essential to real repentance. That's true. But it's not the only thing that's essential to real repentance. The direction of repentance is what matters. Unless the Christian woman who, who blows up at her roommates is really grieved Godwardly, her repentance is not yet Christian repentance. It's not yet real. It's not yet at its deepest point. It hasn't taken her out of herself. It, it, it hasn't changed her at the most fundamental level. Does she repent because she is grieved for her roommate? She, she feels what she is feeling. She wants to understand. Or does she realize that if she doesn't repent, she's going to have to move out and suffer the consequences of her sin? Godward repentance you know, religious repentance is so dangerous because it, we, we think and we act like we've escaped this captivity to self, but we really haven't. We've just dressed it up in religious clothing. We, we repent because of pride. We say, oh, I need to stop lying because I don't want to be like those people I know who lie. Oh, that's repenting from self to self. I like the outward manifestation, but where's the heart? Uh, we repent because of image. I better stop looking at the, these things or doing these things because if I got caught, I would be so ashamed. Whew. Now, don't get me wrong. I hope you, Christian man or woman who are sitting here hearing me, I hope you're not hearing me say, hey, look, don't change your behavior until you have a completely pure heart before God because first of all, you'll be waiting a long time and second of all, um, Tim Keller says, uh, when you're in the midst of temptation, Look, you're sort of like a baby bird that is sitting on a ground and here comes a fox, okay? Bounding up to you and it's gonna get you imminently. 
Now, should you say to yourself, I'm a baby bird. I can't fly yet. I've, you know, I've fallen out of my nest. I can't fly yet, but I'm made to fly. So I guess I'll just flap my wings until I can actually escape this fox. No. You should scurry on the ground, even though you can't fly yet, you should just scurry on the ground and hide behind the tree and hide behind the bush and do everything you can in that moment to get away. Right? Now, but, if that's all you spend your life doing, baby bird, you're never going to become what you were, you're never going to unfold your wings and flap, flap, flap and take off and become all that God created you to be. So, yes, escape now, but be cultivating a heart of repentance that truly grieves for the God that we've hurt with our sin. And if we think about what, what Godward grief would really look like, I think it's simple for us to just sort of simply reflect on what our experience of repentance has been. That is to say, how, would you, how do you like to be repented to? How do you like to be apologized to? I'm sorry. I should not have done that. And I think the key point for this is, I can't imagine how I made you feel. How can I do this differently next time? This is a, a repentance. When someone repents to you, you want them to acknowledge, first of all, the hurt that they've done to you. Yes, they feel guilty. Yes, they're ashamed. Yes, the, some of the consequences they're suffering for their sin are, are painful. That's all true. But real repentance acknowledges the hurt done. This person is grieved not because they feel bad for themselves. Not, no, it's because they're grieved because they hurt you. Godly Christian repentance is Godward. Its direction is Godward. When Christians uh, uh, repent, this is what we do. We see that we have, we have come to God, or we have turned our back on God. We have embraced a different life. We have walked in a way that does not honor him, and we don't come to him with excuses and self-justification, and this is how bad it's making me feel. No, we come because we have offended the one that we love the most. And, and we need the relationship to be healed. God, I am sorry. I have lived in a way that does not please you. I did what I should not have done. You have given me the gift of this life, and instead of taking it, cherishing it, and honoring you with it, I have done just the opposite. I should have put you first. Will you please forgive me? This is Christian repentance. It is Godward. Of course, it doesn't always end there. There are, there are consequences for repentance. We need to, to make some things right. Now, let's just pause and say, I think probably we realize this. It may be an obvious thing. You may be saying, okay, pastor, we get it. I want to be repented to in a way that cares, you know, for me. And of course, God, uh, how much more must he feel that way? We should repent. But why don't we do it? What is, what is so hard? What is, what is keeping us from owning up, eating some crow, turning ourselves back to God and to our neighbor and whoever we may have offended and saying exactly what we did wrong and asking, how can I, first of all, let me know, how have I hurt you and how can I make it better? Why don't we do it? There's simply too much to lose. Too much to lose. We would have to give up control. We would have to give up our power to self-determination. You know, to repent is, is to really give over the keys to your life. You, you maybe have experienced this. Uh, when you have gone to someone, a friend or whoever it might be, a, a coworker, and you've, you've really put yourself 
sort of bare before them, vulnerable before them, and you said, I've really messed up. It's scary to do that, isn't it? Because who knows what they might do with your vulnerability. They, they might stick another, you know, another stab in there. Yeah, you shouldn't have done this. And you know what? Get out of here. It's, it's scary to really take our hands off of our lives and bring ourselves to God and ask him to turn us inside out. What might he ask of us? Will he abuse our trust? How can we have confidence that he won't lead us astray, that he won't turn us astray with a scowl and a sneer? The answer to that question is the core of, of what empowers us to repent. Not just for the first time when we come to Christ and enter into life with him for the first time, but, but every time. Christian repentance, that is, is unique not only for the direction of our repentance, that is, back to God, but also for the dynamic of repentance. So we'll learn the definition, the direction, and now the dynamic of repentance. We see this in verse 10, most explicitly. It says, Godly grief, or Godward grief, we said, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, a life without regret, whereas worldly grief produces only death. So Paul, having heard that the the Christian direction for for repentance is to God, uh, uh, sort of a Godward grief, that real repentance means having real grief for the person that we've wronged, Um, in this case, most fundamentally, God, uh, from whom we've turned away back to ourselves, Maybe you're sitting there thinking, oh, I've got my take home. I need to feel worse. Okay, so I've got to drum up some real grief. Uh, I've got to feel really bad. I've got to really, okay, so how do I do it? I'll feel really bad. I'll think about sad things. No, and then finally, I'll feel bad enough that my repentance will be real. Bad news, you will never get there. (laughs) Um, You will never make yourself convince yourself that you're a sinner. In fact, when we try to do it, I, you know, we often hear and remind ourselves that the Spirit is the one who convicts of sin. We often think of that in terms of the way we relate to others, that we can bring Scripture before people, we can tell people about the truths of the Bible, but only the Spirit can come and convict. How unoften we, we don't apply that to ourselves. Only the Spirit can come and convict us of sin, me of sin. The way out of our fundamental inwardness, self-wardness, is not by looking at ourselves, hoping that we can produce the grief that real repentance requires, because even repentance is a gift from the Lord. If we're ever going to be honest with ourselves and honest with God, we must first know that if we are going to come to him, he will not spurn us. He will not reject us. He will not say, you know what, you did mess up, and you deserve death. So I'm just going to give it to you. We must know, if we're ever going to confess, we must know that we will have an open ear. How can we possibly stand before his holiness, the one who created all things, and before whom we are judged forever toward death or life without fear? Why don't we repent? Why don't we own up? Well, Thankfully, Jesus has answered this question for us in Luke 15. And uh, why invent a sermon illustration when Jesus has already done it? So I'm going to turn to Luke 15 and just read to you what is waiting for those who turn to God in repentance. This is the story of the prodigal son. Jesus tells this story to a group of uh, people who are confident in their own righteousness, who feel that they don't really have the need to repent. And 
And specifically, I just have to read you what, how Jesus sets up this story. It's actually three stories, and you should read them all about 50 times in the next week because it's worth it. But in, in Luke 15, 2, he says, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. He said to them, there is a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Pause. That is us in relationship to God. God, I want your stuff, but I do not want you. I will manage it myself. In this story, the son is as good as telling his father, I wish you were dead. Let's continue. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The son, realizing that he has messed up everything, says, I'll return to my father, but I will come with a PowerPoint presentation of why he should let me back in. How will the father respond? Will he greet him with blows? Will he greet him with scorn and a sneer, as we so expect? This is Jesus telling us the very heart of God, that if we re return to him like this son, maybe some of you feel like this son. Maybe it's been a while since you've returned to God. Maybe you never have, and you feel like this son. I've gone away, I've squandered the life that he's given me with recklessness, whether that is nice, proper, suburban recklessness or real, messy stuff, and I haven't come back to him. How will the Father receive us? And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father was looking for him. And felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father cuts him off. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Parkview Church, what is waiting for us if we would only despair of ourselves and return to our father? A robe, a ring, a kiss, and a party. What are we waiting for? This is the Father's heart for us. This is the Father's heart. What, what we really need in order to repent is to absolutely know that if we were to come to him, he would receive us. This is the Father's heart. And we need to know that if we were to come to him, not only would he receive us, but he wouldn't abuse our trust. He, he wouldn't treat us at our most vulnerable and tell us, Tell us what for, and command us, and, and, and be unkind to us. No. 
What we really need is, is to come to someone in our vulnerability who has already become himself vulnerable toward us, who has already put forgiveness out there, who has already, already demonstrated at the deepest level that they will not strike us back, that they will not put our nose in it. They won't. In Jesus, God has done just that. God's deepest heart today is for us to know, here is Jesus on the cross dying for it, the ones that hate him, the ones who have turned back, only ever repented from self to self, who have never had Godward grief before in their lives, or maybe haven't had it in a week, or whatever it might be. This is the whole point, that we come to him, come to him, return to me. You can be reconciled to God today whether it is for the first time or for the 500th time. And it is, and we will receive you too, just as the Father receives the Son in this story, with joy and celebration, not rubbing your nose in it, not reminding you of all you've done wrong, but reminding you of all that Christ has done right. One of the most powerful ways that we can become not just individual people of repentance, but a culture of repentance, a church that's marked by repentance, is, is by receiving repenters in the way that the Father God does. With running, squeezing. He's looking for his son. He let his son leave, and then he sat at the stoop every day waiting, hoping that he would come back. He was looking for him. When he sees even the, the merest sign of him walking down the road, maybe miles away, what does he do? He shakes off his sandals, lifts up his whatever his old guys wore then, and runs down the lane to greet them. He apologize to me. And when they finally show up your door, oh, what did you want to talk about? Oh, yeah, you got something to say? No. We will receive repent. If we receive repenters, we show we have a culture of repentance by honoring those who repent. I'll tell you what. There is nothing that impresses me more than a man who knows exactly what is wrong and knows deeply how Jesus feels about it and knows how to make changes in their life. That is impressive. Let's make that impressive at Parkview. Repentance is not a dark mark on your resume, spiritual resume, that sort of says, uh, you know, second class. No, actually, that moves you right to the top because repentance is not just the way into the Christian life where we apologize to God for the first time. Repentance is the only way through the Christian life. Because we, repentance is not like a birthday that we, we do once and then we look back to it maybe every year and we say, yay, I'm so glad I repented. Go me, I repented. No, repentance is like a shower because our flesh, our, just like with a shower, every day it's producing new greases and oils and all kinds of gross stuff and we need to you know, hop in there and, and have the Lord dunk us deep into his love and into his heart of outwardness and love so that we can be cleaned and transformed and be the people that God created us to be. Let's be famous for our repentance. Let's be, let's be incredible apologizers. Let's, let us be just the kind of people that, uh, that, that cherish one another in repentance. Not just a people who happen to have repented, but a people who repent. What do you need for this? You need friendships. You need Christian friendships. You need context where this can actually happen, where you can be formed in it, where you can see it done to you and for you and, and toward you. Uh, if, if you're here and the only time you really connect with people is here on a Sunday morning, which right now, even more sparing than usual, 
you have to form Christian friendships. Whether you join in a community group or you just look at the person behind you and say, I, you know, I'm, can I tell you a secret? I'm a sinner, okay? That's good. That's good stuff. That's what we should be doing. We need friendships. That is sort of my one call to you today is make a friend, someone that you can do that with. So, Parkview, will we be empowered in the spirit of renewal, in this time of renewal? Will we be beautified before God and a watching world? Will we be filled with God's power? Will we, and of course, most importantly, will we escape God's wrath and enter into his heart forever of love? The only question is, will we repent? Will we repent? If so, the answer is yes. Let's embrace the Godward life by embracing repentance today. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I do not know who is here. I do not know. But I pray if there's anyone here who does not yet know what it means to come back into your heart of love so that we can turn from self-interest, self-focus, from the devastation that that brings in our lives, the death that it really brings in our lives, both now and unto eternity, I pray that you would bring into their heart the spirit to give real godly grief. If you are here and you feel real godly grief, now is the moment. The Father sees you from far away and is running toward you. You could repent like this. Heavenly Father, forgive me. I've, I've turned myself inward, but I want to change. I want to honor you. I know I have hurt you. Forgive me. Amen. Now that, Lord, we pray that that would not just be the heart of the people who do not yet trust you, but of all of us who look to Christ, despair of our own resources, despair of our inward condition that we so constantly return to. Wash us in the blood of Christ. Give us his heart of love for you and for those around us. Beautify our church. Make us a culture of repentance. Not just individual repenters, but a culture of repentance where we honor those who repent, where we we are famous for our repentance, Lord. Please do all this for the glory of your son, Jesus, who showed us what it means to be made vulnerable so that we can lift up others. In your name we pray, amen.